Brian here. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Go Be More podcast. At Go Be More, our mission is simple. We want you to chase your dreams. Our apparel is designed to be a constant reminder of your commitment. This podcast aims to give you the motivation and mindset to get started and keep going. In this episode, John and I speak with the founder of Angel City Sports, Clayton Freck. Angel City Sports is one of the largest nonprofit organizations supporting adaptive athletics in the U.S. today. They provide sports programs for kids, adults, and veterans with physical disabilities and visual impairments. Clayton was thrust into this world when his son Ezra was born with a deformed lower left leg and only one finger on his left hand. Despite these disabilities, Ezra was an amazing athlete who excelled at many sports, including basketball and football. But finding opportunities to compete wasn't always easy, and it led Clayton to create the first Angel City Games, a multi-day sports extravaganza held at UCLA, which has now become an annual event. One of my big takeaways from this conversation was the need to find and fill the gaps in our own lives and communities. There were already programs for disabled athletes, so Clayton set about creating an amazing competition and an experience to bring people together. And they now hold weekend clinics to give people a chance to experience the fun of competition and community, which solved the problem of getting started with a low commitment experience for many people. Clayton and Angel City Sports are doing a lot of things right and creating a lot of good for their community, and it was truly inspiring to learn more about their story. And now, here's our conversation with Clayton Freck. All right, Clayton Freck, welcome to the Go Be More podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Clayton, I'm just going to admit it now so that everybody knows you are my brother from another mother. <laughs> We've been looking for each other our entire lives and we finally found each other. So I just love, I love every moment with you. This is just so awesome. We're just basically playing catch up is what I feel like. <laughs> and, 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 and John, we've only known each other for like two weeks. I know. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> you know, to be honest, before we get to start about you, Clayton, like I hear that so much with John. John is such a, you know, obviously he's an amazing person and, and who he is, is is a big reason why I'm working with him on Go Be More and everything that we're doing, right? But uh, the number of people who I meet, who John has just met, and they're just like, oh my God, John and I are just so close. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> like, I've known him for 20 years. You've known him for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I got a really big, uh, a really big heart and I just love, I love people, man. And I'm open. What you see is what you get. And I, it's always been kind of like this, but there are certain people that you meet along the way that I've met along the way where it's just like, oh man, where have you been? And it was so funny. Everybody that, you know, and it, it, just to give some context. So, you know, go be more super excited about the world of adapted athletics and we I've gotten to know and trained around a Paralympic athletes and um, athlete, athletes in the adapted athletics world. And I'm just like, Oh my gosh, when Kobe Moore gets to the point where we can explore this relationship, we want to dive into that world wholeheartedly. And um, as we've begun to start doing that over the last uh, six to eight weeks, your name kept coming up. Clayton, everybody's like, well, you got to talk to Clayton. You got to talk to Clayton. <laughs> and all these athletes that I'm speaking to, some of them for the first time, they're like, oh my gosh, you sound like Clayton. You sound like Clayton. You're like, you got to talk to Clayton. And then eventually, uh, one of the, the top Paralympic athletes in the world um, Isaac, he's like, yo, you need to talk to Clayton. He got, he sent me a text one day. He's like, I sent you his information two days ago. Have you spoken to him yet? And then he's just like, I don't care how busy you are, John. You need to call him right now. And then we started texting. I think two minutes of getting on the video call. We're like, yep. Oh, I know. We're well, good. The best part of that is Isaac said the same thing about you. I mean, he was like, yeah. you know, 
I'm going to send your, you know, info to this guy, John, you're going to love it. Like, like, like Isaac was our matchmaker. Um, yeah. Thank you, Isaac. <laughs> Who, and he's an amazing person too. And at some point we got to get him on our show because what an amazing athlete, human being, this guy, that guy is hungry. That guy is hungry. Uh, but that was well, the connection. That was the whole thing, you know, that well, my, brought us my together. Isaac moment. So I've known him for a few years was, uh, us, Paralympic track and field trials, uh, 2016 leading into Rio. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was at UCLA. Mm -hmm. I think, I'm pretty sure it was at UCLA. I'm, I get my dates all mixed up these days. So you know, no worries. And, uh, yeah. and they schedule his high jump in the evening as the sun's setting. And he's blind. <laughs> he can see a little bit. And so any light is super helpful for him. And he goes, yeah, of course. They put the blind guy at night. Like, <laughs> um, so he had to jump even more blind than he might otherwise be if he was jumping in the daytime, right? Because he can sort of you know, right. orientate up a bit as he's doing high jump. So if you've never seen a blind man do the high jump or the long jump even, Lex Gillette yeah. you know, and, and Isaac both do the long jump, it's, yeah. it's the most breathtaking thing you can imagine. You know, mm. like, it's so incredible. It's, it's yeah. to me, I look at it, it's, it's like they're sprinting full speed down the runway and I, they're just doing it by timing with the clapping sounds or whatever they're using with their guide. And then like, I saw videos of Lex like jump and like miss the pit. And you're just like, oh my God, any, every single jump, he knows that yeah. that's a possibility. Yeah, if he just gets a little bit off. At world championships, he missed the pit. Um, yeah. And high jump, you don't even have a clap. You, <laughs> I don't even know how it works. Yeah. yeah. You start at the bar and then you do, you walk your way out to your mark and you know turn around and you go <laughs> wow yeah the courage of the confidence like i mean talk about swagger honestly like <laughs> watching videos and even watching the training so i lived at the Olympic training center for three years in chula vista and being this is where i was introduced to these phenomenal athletes whom i just want to make it very clear i believe are some of the best athletes in the world period yeah. period there's no asterisks no qualification just they're some of the best athletes in the world and i'm around these athletes and i'm sitting there going what i mean oh my gosh talk about being pushed and challenged to be even better and i'm like i don't really have any any challenges physically you know i'm like i'm i'm good you know and and i, I just, what can i what do i have to complain about and then i watch these guys these men and women these boys and girls go out and do their thing and i'm like mm, yeah i i gotta work harder you know, and, and then they go watch them compete. The confidence, the courage, the faith that they have with which they compete, it is, it is breathtaking. It's so, and it's so exciting. And I'm like, talk about being captivated. No, yeah. you're, you're so right. I feel the same way. I mean, I, I sort of stumbled into this world, you know, 15 years ago. I'm sure we'll get to that part of my story. But right, mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. what, what I think is really kind of cool about it is they're elite athletes, and so they've sort of mastered their right their bodies, their athletic performance. But for many of them that are either amputees on a blade or you know using a chair for a variety of sports or you know some sort of technology, you know it's they have to master their body, and then they have to master the body's interaction with the technology to optimize the technology. And mm -hmm. and you know, these Blade Runners make it look so easy. These, you know, Tatiana McFadden and, and Daniel Romanchuk and these, these, these wheelchair racers that are so lightning fast, they make it look so easy. But mm -hmm. it's not that easy to dial in technology uh, in a way to get to that elite level. So I, that's another piece of this, the whole story around the Paralympics that I think is, 
it's not told as much um, because it's hard. It's hard to even explain it. Um, well, you, you explained it pretty well. And I want to highlight it because that is such a good point. Think about it. If you already are, are just no physical challenges, right? It's already hard to, do, yeah. to master your thing. Right. Now imagine trying to master your body physically and you're, you're having to account for having physical challenges to overcome. And then you're trying to master your event or your discipline or your sport. Yeah. And then you have all of the other factors that the challenges that you, you face is just wanting to win and compete and be your best. And then you know, the, the audience and the crowd and, and mastering your nerves, blah, 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 blah. Think about There's so many layers to that. And then you add in accounting for the, the things that you have to work with as far as like the blades or uh, the wheelchair or, oh my goodness. And then you watch them do what they do. Hey, yeah, there's a lot going on there, you know, and it's, what you just said made me really, I'll restate how I say this in the future because it's very interesting. So you're right. You listed all those variables that every athlete has to deal with. And then these, these athletes have, you know, a body that doesn't really always function the same way. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's harder even to find the right coaching and the training to support to optimize what they do have. Mm -hmm. And then you have this technology thing, which is, it's a constantly moving variable. The technology is not constant. And, you know, like, and the way your body interacts with it is not, it's not a constant. So it, it's like, man, it's a whole nother level of like intellectual, like mental game to optimize how the technology is performing at that moment because it changes. Technology wears down, right? Or your yeah. body changes or whatever. There's a million things that they happen. They advance on something that, that you, there's a new model. There's the way things fit, the way things interact with you. You know, yeah. I, any, any runner who has shoes, when, when, when you love a pair of shoes and they discontinue it and you have to pick your next pair of shoes, it's like, it's a whole process, right? Trying to find yeah. a shoe that's going to work for you. Right. But even yeah. then, one of the things we talk all the time on our Go Be More podcast and stuff is about the concept of friction and there's friction in your life, right? Mm. And and things that hold you back. It's, it's not, it could be just your daily life things. It could be your relationships. It could be anything. But if you're in adaptive athletics and you're, let's say you're, you're blind, your life just has more friction. Like there's so many more things that are just harder to do. So not, you're, you've got the sport, you've got the technology, you've got all these other things. Plus you've got getting to the meets. You've got getting, you've got, it just, it just compounds. And it makes it that much more impressive when you really start to see the, the results that they're able to produce at the, at the elite level of uh, adaptive well, athletics. You, you honestly, Brian, you just got to the, the like part of the rationale for us starting Angel City, mm. which is it's so complicated. You got it. We got to simplify the process of getting started in sport. We got to make it easier and more accessible yeah. and bring all of those components together for the athletes to sort of, at least make the first few years as smooth and easy and fun as possible. So they'll stay engaged. You know, it yeah. can't just this like, Oh, here's a mountain. I climb that. And then here's another, like it can't just be this constant right set of these almost insurmountable challenges unless you're really well resourced. And so that's a problem we have in the adaptive sports community, which is you tend to have to really be well resourced to figure all this stuff out. You have to have financial and time be able to travel, like all these things. And, you know, like it shouldn't be so hard to just 
live an active life. Well, I told you at the beginning of this podcast that we always start with, we always, there's only one question that's kind of the same question and, that, and we skipped right past it, which is hilarious. But I, I, I'm, I'm thinking about this for a second because I, we're about to dive into Angel City Sports and I've just decided, I'm, I'm going to arbitrarily decide, we're, let's hold on that for a second. Let's not get into it for a second because we want to talk about you a little bit. And I think it will help to describe why Angel City Sports has been able to be successful as well. It'll be important for this. But can you tell us a little bit about your background, sort of maybe a little bit where you grew up and how you got into sports in general? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So a couple of things. So I, I grew up uh, the product of a divorced uh, family. Uh, most, most of my life I was in Santa Barbara, California, but I've spent a bunch of uh, time on the East Coast in Bethesda, Maryland. So I was this sort of bi-coastal kid, um, moved a lot, uh, constantly moving. So I, I, and this is a piece of kind of my motivation and what, what, what I do with Angel City because growing up, I mean, I never really felt like I belonged anywhere. When I was in Santa Barbara, I was the kid that was from Maryland. And then I was in Maryland, I was the kid from California. So like, I never really, you know, felt like I had a place. And mm -hmm really sport is what helped me through some of the trickier transitions there. So uh, when I made my first sort of big move to the East Coast, uh, beginning of fifth grade, on the soccer field, uh, the first day, you know, at lunch, you know, I, I was picked last. Yeah, because you know, who knows you? Nobody knows who you Nobody are. Nobody knew who I yeah. was. You know, yep. I was wearing like funny, I was wearing like Vans and like OP shirt, <laughs> lightning bolt, like this cool West Coast style, yeah. <laughs> and they thought I was the weirdest kid they've ever seen, you know, uh, it's very preppy, you know, Bethesda. Yeah. But so I got picked last and I was like, oh man, I'm going to show these guys, you know. So I scored a ton of goals. And from that point on, for the next two years in grade school, I was one of the captains that got to pick because I was like one of the best players, you know. Yeah. And my best friend turned out was the other guy that was the other captain. So he and I never played together until we started playing <laughs> club, club together. So like sport kind of gave, gave me that place yes. of, you know, it gave me like that confidence that I, I could fit in in this new, this new world. And then what's really funny is when I moved back to California, I was like back and forth, but I kind of moved back permanently to California for 10th grade, which is a really awkward year to move. Mm -hmm. And at that time I had given up soccer, even though I, I probably could have gone reasonably far in soccer. Um, mm -hmm. I, was, I thought I was too much of an individual to play a team sport, which is super fun. <laughs> I, don't like, I don't like to live with regrets, but that's one of them, man. I was like, what am I doing? Like I didn't, I could have played in high school, maybe college. Like what was I thinking? Yeah. 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 So anyways, um, I wanted to be a pro skateboarder. That was my, okay. and I was, I was uh, more of a street skater, but um, on the East Coast, there was a ton of ramps. So I skated big, big ramps, scary ramps. I never wow. liked too much, but like, um, I was a better street skater. Come back to California. I'm going to be a, you know, pro skater, you know, and um, I found my crew through skateboarding and yeah. it happened to be, you know, a little bit of a degenerate crew that wasn't all, they weren't all going to school, but I kind of found my, my belonging. And then from there, I realized I wasn't as good as I thought I was. And so I sort of drifted more into the surf crowd and sort of, you know, I gave up the, the dream. But when I look back on my life, like not feeling like you belong anywhere is a real driver for me. It's been a driver sort of throughout my life and career. And, and also just the role of sport, you know, in the kind of, catching me and helping me kind of land with my feet on the ground 
Um, and so after those sort of childhood traumatic events, you know, at one point my dad said something really funny. He goes, I love your dream to be a pro skater, but why don't you go to college as well? Um, which was really right. good advice, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's a great, a great positive spin on, 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 of, of dad advice, right? It's like, uh-huh. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> So, you know, I mostly skateboarded to class, but, you know, whatever. I, uh, I, did, I went, you know, at college, started, you know, got, entered the workforce, went back to, to grad school. And, uh, you know, I've been really last 20 plus years sort of just climbing the, the corporate ladder, uh, you know, sort of taking bigger and bigger jobs. I'm really, at my heart, I'm an operations guy. Um, oh, okay, great. So I, I kind of like to manage and kind of run things. And I, you know, I kind of, uh, I don't mind being the guy at the top, but I also, I just, I've kind of gravitated to sort of obscure industries. I mean, I've been in the windshield business. I've been in the party rental business um, <laughs> and done some consulting as well. But, you know, I've had kind of a mixed background and I even worked in government a couple stints in my, my earlier 20s, thinking that I was going to become uh, like an environmental policy guy. And so, um, had lots of twists and turns, um, and and even thought I was going to go into academia. So that's that's where my my dad is. He's an economics professor. When you Brian's face, he's just loving this. He's like, oh yeah, wow, like, look at all this, look at all this. I'm like, more, I'm this more operations like guy too, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, he got his face lit up when he's an operations guy. He's like, oh. Wait a minute, maybe we're brothers. <laughs> <laughs> I could just see that look on his face. I love it. Well, I was going to say, you know, Angel City Sports is, as we, we've discussed before the podcast, like it's a very large organization within, within the space that it operates, right? Within adaptive athletics, within nonprofits in general. Yep. But, you know, it's not easy to lead a large organization. <clears throat> and it, one of the things that stands out to me about your background is even though they're sort of obscure industries and there's you did have a lot of experience before you started Angel City Sports in, mm-hmm. or in running businesses, right? Like you kind of paid your dues to learn how real businesses work. And do you feel that contributed to your ability to, to actually be successful with Angel City Sports? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, we were talking about it before the podcast. So I think there's some like glaring gaps in my skill set that I'm happy to, you know, right, right. With. Uh, but the, the pieces that I think were really helpful. So, you know, I've run hundred, $150 million P and L's, um, had seven, 800,000 employees seasonal. Um, you know, I've run big, you know, pretty big operations mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, worked, I've done some startups and I've worked for kind of mid, mid market, you know, kind of 50 to 250 million. And then I worked for like a billion dollar company as well. So I kind of, I've seen the big corporate stuff and kind of things in between. So like, but kind of no matter where you are in corporate America, there is a growth mentality. Mm-hmm. If you're not growing, you're vulnerable, mm-hmm. right? If you're not improving and growing. You're literally immediately become a target mm-hmm. you know? and you want to be at the top of the list of everybody that's growing. You don't want to be at the middle of the bottom of that list. Even if you were growing, you're just not growing fast enough because that guy's growing this fast. Yeah. Um, so, or improving or whatever. So, um, I don't know. It's like, maybe it's like a paranoia or something too. Like, you know, you just want to keep, keep, keep ahead of everybody else. John probably right. can relate to that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well. um, sure. yeah. You know, and so I bring a real growth mindset. I also bring 
well, for, I don't really think like a nonprofit person. So that's mm -hmm. probably helpful to some extent. It's probably hurts me in some spots, but I think overall that's helpful. You know, I also can kind of walk into any room and that's something that's, you know, that's built over decades in, you know, in the working world and, and being able to walk into an executive suite or a meeting with, you know, the mayor of Los Angeles or Casey Wasserman who runs LA 2028, you know, like I, you know, I can kind of move uh, between all of these worlds yes. um, that I think is helpful uh, because, any, you know, I've it's funny, I never thought I was a salesperson. I've managed salespeople, but I really, I'm an ops guy. But mm -hmm. if you give me something I care about, I can sell. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not going to say I'm a great fundraiser. I think I'm, I think that's like a gap for me, but I can, I can convince you that this is something that's important. Yes. And so I think that like that over time, you, that's a part of the stickiness, right? Of building something that's sustainable is that there's a really good sales pitch and a really compelling, passionate person behind it, bringing new people, new organizations into the fold. And so I think that's a real a real benefit. And, and interestingly, yeah, I went to business school and blah, 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 whatever. But like, I've had all kinds of jobs. I mean, I've been, mm -hmm. I've been a janitor, you know, I've been, mm -hmm. I've worked in cafeterias. I've had every job you can imagine in a cafeteria from dishwasher to baker to salad bar. Got, like I've done everything. You know, I've been a shoe salesman. Like, like I, I've done like the most random, uh -huh. like, you know, jobs. And so, and, and like kind of nobody really handed me anything. I mean, the thing that my parents gave me was you, you have to, you have to get educated, you know, like that's gotta mm. be, that's important to us that, you know, my parents were all very well educated. That's what was on the dinner, the dining room table, you know, during dinner was like policy and politics and economics. And, you know, like, um, so education was really valued, but, but I, you know, I put myself through school, I put myself through grad school. It's sort of like, I've had to kind of grind. And yeah. I, I think, you know, it, maybe it allows me to sort of interact with everybody that sort of could be part of what we're doing that I'm not coming at them from some like higher position. I, right, I it's relatable. You can, you can understand what their role is, the yeah. value that they're contributing, like where they're but at in their lives. I, yeah. I can walk into that executive suite and yep. make the case, but I'm probably most happy interacting with the athletes that are just showing up and getting to know them and like, Right, find right, right. You know, inspire them to go be more. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you, uh, you you started Angel City Sports in 2015, but I think it, it's probably useful right now to talk a little bit about Ezra and about yep. how you got into the world of adaptive athletics. Before yeah. you had your son, were you really aware or involved in in adaptive athletics at all, or what did it did it really come from your son's? Well, condition? yeah. Let me. Let, yeah, I'll start from from the the ground zero, which is never in a million years would I have imagined that I would be doing anything in sport. Yeah. Like it's never, other than liking to do sports, like I've grown up surfing, skateboarding, skiing, snowboarding, whatever, like mm -hmm. sailing with my dad. I mean, listen, this is something I give my dad a lot of credit for. I mean, he really, he got me outdoors, you know, me and my brother like, and my brothers, like, like we always did stuff with him, which was great. That was like part of being a dad. And so that actually, that's part of my journey too, of like, mm -hmm. what does dad mean? Right. Um, so I didn't imagine a career in sport and I never think thought about disability. Like, like, like it was just not something that I gave one ounce of thought to. Yeah. And, uh, and then 
And then my son Ezra was born, my first son, uh, and we were surprised at birth that he was born different. He was born uh, with only one finger on his left hand. It was probably two fingers fused, just one finger on his left hand, um, no knee and no fibula, which is the shin bone on his left side. And so uh, the gene that controls the major limb bones got like bad directions and you know, affected his left side. Sometimes it hits all four limbs. Yeah. or upper or lower. And so it's super rare that it was just one side for him. Yeah. Already a really rare thing. And so in the hospital, I mean, we did 3D ultrasounds. We did the whole thing. You know, this is only 15 years ago. Yeah. And they just missed it. They missed everything. We, so we found out when he was, he came out of the shoot and we had a delivery room with like 20 family members. I mean, it was gnarly. And I was really the first person that noticed yeah doctor he comes out and i i first saw the hand and i'm yeah yeah i don't you know i mean i thought maybe it's folded or something so i'm really paying attention to look at the hand and then i see the leg and the leg is not straight the leg is yeah. curved it had a little foot but it was like curved you know and it wasn't laying down right and i like i looked at this so you know my wife's in front of me and there's a nurse on the other side Right. And I just looked mm. at this nurse. I was about to pass out. I mean, I was yeah. like getting lightheaded. Oh, like, no. this? And she gave me this look. I don't know if any of you have people in your lives that can give you this look, but it was like, it's going to be okay. And get your shit together at the same yeah. time. There was yeah. like, yeah. there was like yeah. love. And then there was like a, like a <laughs> all with the eyes. Yeah. <laughs> and cause we kind of love this lady. Like she's, 40 year, you know, yeah. the baby nurse, at, at, you know, at, at Cedar Sinai, like amazing. Yeah. But you want her in the room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and she just gave me this look. And so I like held onto the table and I'm like, okay, I, I got this. So I can figure this out. So, and I, oh. I said something to the doc and we cleared the room and, you know, checked the baby out. And what was really interesting is right out of the shoot, he was smiling, stoked to be there. Um, tracking, following, you know, my wife and I's voice. Like, you, this kid was really alert. Like, there was, you know, we, mm-hmm. we, we got him tested for everything else just to make sure there wasn't any other challenges. But um, he, he, was, he was cool. He just had a different body, you know, yeah. From, from, yeah. from day one. And, uh, you know, my, so my wife and I had a lot to process, especially just in the hospital. And what does this mean? And, um, and we got some amazing advice from one of the old, uh, more seasoned orthopedic surgeons, you know, who just said, listen, you're going to, he gave us like a roadmap and, and we followed that roadmap to a T like, you know, go to Shriners hospital, get him a, get him a leg when he's trying to, trying to walk. And then you'll be chasing him around the mall, just like any other kid. And then, uh, you know, like, it's like, so helpful if somebody could just lay out a roadmap for you. We've yeah. had these conversations with different people, different conditions, kidney disease, you know, disabilities, yeah. other things. And it's like, when you don't have a roadmap, it's really difficult. It's mm-hmm. so yeah. overwhelming trying to figure out what you're supposed to do. Oh, right? true. And, and yeah. he said, when he's about two, you want to remove the lower leg. It's not going to help him. And take, take a toe or a couple toes and figure out what you can take off that foot and put it on a hand. Uh, so it's really innovative surgery. It's under, it's a micro, under a microscope, 15-hour surgery. So when he was two, we, we did that. We removed the lower leg. We transplanted the big toe onto his hand. So he, his hand goes from one to two fingers. Um, All right. Okay. So he goes. And uh, so really pretty insane journey. Uh, he, he had another surgery in like 
kindergarten to just help the hand didn't really probably do much at four was a big milestone so we left Shriners went over to hair clinic a private kind of for-profit um, prosthetic clinic got him a knee uh, so he was able to kind of clean up his gait so when you're right. little you typically don't put a kids in a knee a prosthetic with a knee it's just a little more for them to think about but at four he was ready and, and so we did that and then right after that we got him a running blade so the kid's been on a running blade for like 11 years and wow and he he mainstreamed sport you know like played he's a great quarterback flag football pretty good at soccer played baseball but he was an amazing basketball player played club basketball kind of at the at the peak of his career um and was like wow the kid that nobody even understood how to guard and he has just amazing shot and one of his coaches you guys you guys love this as athletes uh one of his coaches goes how is he always in sh- shooting position? Like he's always ready to shoot. If you just flipping the ball, he can, he, can, he can shoot right away. Yeah. And I thought about it for a second. And, and so he plays basketball on a running blade, right, with a yeah. knee. So there's no stability on the left side, none. Yeah. And so he has to stand on one leg. So he's always upright. So he's always in shooting position. And so his coach didn't understand why he was that way, but he understood it. So – they would design plays. Ezra could be in the weirdest place, but he somehow he was always in shooting in a shooting form. That's so interesting. That's so cool. If you know that about your athlete, you can really get a lot out of them. And so his coach would just just totally use. It took advantage of that. You know that strength. You know being on a blade. Like, is, sound hard. like Steph Steph Curry, man. I mean Steph is way to shoot from anywhere on the court. Literally, he could be on the other side of the court and shoot it from three quarters court and make it. But he's always ready to shoot. So it's kind of like a Steph Curry situation. That's cool. Yeah, no, you're, you're totally right. Uh, it, it's it's fascinating. So yeah. So, so that's just like the kid that that we we birthed. And he, what's super interesting about him is he always loves sport. From like six months old, I got him his first ball. He freaked out with his ball and his hand. He's like, we're he wouldn't let the ball go. We're playing catch and pass. And, you know, he learns to count by twos watching Laker games. Like the kids are <laughs> uh, crazy obsessed about sports. And, you know, one of the other th- sort of like words of advice that we got along the way was seek out his community, find camps mm-hmm. or whatever you got to do. And mm-hmm. Shire was a starting point, but really not a great, there wasn't much there. But my sort of lowest moment was that summer he was born because I, I thought being a dad meant doing sports with your child. Mm-hmm. Like, I just didn't know, I hadn't been a dad yet. And that's all I really knew from my dad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I did that summer is like where I processed my loss, right? Uh, yeah. My perceived loss was I would go surf and not, I just would cry in the water and not catch any waves. I literally, I would paddle out for an hour and cry and then paddle back in. Um, oh man! Wow! And because it's the best place to cry. Yeah. Because nobody knows you're crying. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you can be in Mother Nature, and there's people all over the place, and they have no idea you're crying. Can I ask yeah. you? Uh, can I ask amazing. you? This it just it, it it connects to so many of other interviews we've had. Did you have any kind of a, a support network for you? at that time or were you seeking it out or, or obviously you, you, you were going out in the water to cry, but I mean, when in your daily life, was there a community that you could connect with of parents with, with kids who have similar sort of conditions or anything like that? You know, there, there is, and I can talk more about that at the time. 
we were so new. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't know what organizations were, were out there. We we sort of didn't know what to do and what yeah. our journey was going to be. I will tell you a funny story. So there is an organization, uh, the Amputee Coalition of America, and I found them right away and, you know, whatever, signed up for information. Mm-hmm. And so they sent me a care package, which wasn't much. It was just like a bunch of flyers and, you know, uh, little booklets and stuff. But I was not processing information at the time. And so right. I, I put it aside and I didn't even look at it for years. And years later, I came back to it. And I'm like, oh, this was pretty good. I should have actually opened the thing. <laughs> this yeah. would help me. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so I didn't really have any, um, I didn't have much. Yeah. Uh, we, we did get a few referrals from our doc to just start talking to people, right? So we did, we did start talking to uh, mostly like teenager or late teens, early 20s, ampu- like kid amputees that grew up, that were born different, that sort of had, you know, kind of run the, run the gamut. and. The, the main takeaway from that was the kids that seemed better adjusted, more self-confidence and just farther along in the self-acceptance journey uh, tended to be from small towns. Even oh, if they were in a small town now, they tended to have those early formative years in a small town. And I think it's just cause like, Oh, that's just Bobby with one leg or Susie with one arm or whatever. It's like, no big deal. Yeah. You know, like everybody knows Bobby. Um, so, but in your in LA, Orange County, these big cities, these highly populated places, every time that kid steps out of their front door, someone's pointing at them, staring at them, and, and you know, it takes a lot to sort of stay above that. that uh, mm. So, so anyway, back to the surf stuff. So, so I spend the summer sort of wallowing right. you know, in, in this loss. The beauty of like hitting rock bottom is that there's nowhere else to go. And at some point you start climbing your way out of it. Yep. And, uh, and uh, John knows that. Um, and so this is, you know, this is uh, 2000, 2005. So Google's around and you can kind of figure stuff out on the line. So I just started Googling like amputee surfing. Uh-huh. And so that's what sort of started me on the journey in adaptive sports. Because there were a couple organizations, they didn't, nobody really got back to me, but I sort of stumbled onto uh, the Challenged Athletes Foundation, which is a, a partner of ours, and we've done a lot of fundraising and advocacy work for them over the years. And so Ezra's like five months old now, so I made it through my sort of summer of self-pity. <laughs> yeah. Born in May, so I sort of cried my way through the summer. We found Challenged Athletes that fall, and they go, and I just said, I just want to meet an amputee surfer. I just want to meet somebody that's surfing you know, like, and they said, oh my gosh, you got, you got to come down to our big event. This surfer from Brazil named Pirata, the pirate is coming to our event. And you'll- <laughs> Pirata, that's a fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> so he, he lost his leg in a, a motorcycle accident and, uh, and he built his first leg out of wood. So his people na- just named him the pirate because he built his own leg. And so <laughs> he's an amazing, he's an amazing guy. So we go down to this event we didn't know anything, right? You asked, like, did you find the community? And this is where we found the community. So first of all, it's, it's like a big triathlon, and there's amputees, spinal cord, all these different inj- people with disabilities doing this triathlon or just kind of hanging out or whatever. There's Paralympians everywhere. So we meet our, really meet our first Paralympians there, Rudy Garcia Tolson, Sarah Ryanson, um, a few others. Um, and uh, and but, but 
sorry, you got a, you got a phone call coming it's in. It's all here. good. You're <laughs> good. Yeah. Uh, but, but we spent the weekend with Pirat. Okay. And we yeah. became kind of part of this like Brazilian crew that comes to this event every year. And uh, he didn't speak a lot of English and you know, un poco Portuguese. So like, well, I don't speak a lot of Portuguese. So it's like, though. but we just yeah. like, we figured it out. And I went surfing with Pirata and you know, he's in the left above knee amputee, exactly what, what Ezra was going to be once we removed the lower leg. So Ezra's like five months old. He's just a little yeah. baby. And we're just like, you know, um, and so really the Challenge Athletes Foundation and Pirata himself personally sort of, you know, brought me out of that curve. And so after that, you know, we started doing, we did camps, amputee camps. And I, I like kind of, once I realized Ezra was really into sport, I sort of started that journey to just make sure I understood all the, what was out there. And so then the spark for Angel City was, uh, I had been told by a Paralympian, John Siciliano, who, by the way, is an amazing story. You guys are going to love this guy. His leg fell off in the middle of the 100-meter heat, uh, qualifying heat in the Paralympics in Atlanta. He grabs his leg and hops to the finish line. There's not a dry eye in this stadium. Oh, you know? my gosh. Um, like, every time I like, think about his story, it's incredible. Um, so he, he goes, listen, you got to – once he's about eight years old, take him to the Endeavor Games. So that's like a, a big – relatively big Paralympic competition, very well known. It's, it was really, at the time, this is 2013, so I was eight, eight years old. It, it, was, it's the be- it was the best place to introduce kids in the country to Paralympic sport. Mm-hmm. We had been pretty connected through the Challenge Athletes, so we kind of, we knew a fair amount, but this like blew our knowledge off, you know, Paralympians just everywhere, all these different sports. Ezra sets national records. In track, he did. He went and competed. He he wasn't just there watching. He he entered in, in oh yeah, yeah. No, races. No, I signed yeah. him up. For, I signed him up for until just like a year and a half ago. I made him do nine track events. Oh my so gosh! <laughs> I made him do the three throws, the two jumps, and then I, I made him do the sixty all the way through the four hundred. And he used to complain, and I'm like, dude, I don't know what event you're going to be good at. Like, let's yeah. keep your mind open. And you know, now he's got his three high jump, long jump, and hundred meter, but but like, I didn't know what he was going to be good at. So we, you know, he has an, we has an amazing time. And on the track, this, and this event's in Oklahoma, near Oklahoma City, and uh, it's tornado season, you know, like, you know, it feels like you're going to get hit by a tornado any minute. And I just asked the question that Sunday, like, why do I have to come to Oklahoma to do this? Like, this is amazing. Yeah. And it's literally changed my child's life uh, forever. Mm-hmm. And... I got to do this in Los Angeles. Like I got to do this in Southern California. I got, I got 20 million people within a two hour drive of, of where we are. Like, why can't this be big and, you know, serve a ton of people? Because when we were talking about resources and those barriers, I flew 2000 miles, right? Mm-hmm. Cost a couple thousand bucks in airfare and hotel and rental car and food and everything. There was no other family from California. Mm-hmm. Most of the families are from Oklahoma, Texas, like all the surrounding states, like a few, few of the teams come in that are fun. Yeah. So like, it makes sense. Like that's, that's expensive. So I was very like, it was kind of like a lightning bolt moment for me when it was like, Oh my God, this is one of the things that I'm meant to do on this planet is figure this out. Like, can I I ask this question? And I feel like it's kind of a naive question, but you know, you mentioned that Ezra was, doing pretty well in just playing sports like age group sports like basketball or whatever you know 
And then he had this experience where it was very adaptive athletic specific. Like this, he went to a game with, with people with similar conditions. You obviously went down the path of creating opportunities for adaptive athletics, but was there a path for him to just stay in the groups, in the clubs with able-bodied athletes, you know, whatever you, I don't know, and just pursue that and trying to be a basketball player on, on a, on a, on a okay. typical club basketball team or something. I'm, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm curious about that because yeah, yeah. What you, why do you, why do you like pivot? Yeah. Why, why focus on the, on the, the adaptive athletics piece of it when he was obviously athletically capable enough to hold his own in whatever you would call it, whatever the competition that existed at the time. That's a really, it's a really good question. So and I'm going to say, stay above Ezra for a second because I think sure. it's super interesting for anyone that has a kid to think about, which is uh, amputees especially can mainstream. In many cases, they can mainstream for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Depending on the amputation and exactly their disability, and the, the, at some point, they start to fall behind. Okay. And at some point, it really becomes unfair for them to have to compete against able-bodied athletes. When they're younger, you don't notice it as much. It's not as obvious. And those kids tend to be harder working kids. Mm-hmm. So they sort of, they out hustle out, you know, they kind of outsmart as was very a high IQ athlete in basketball. Um, you know, he got tons of rebounds on one leg and one hand. Like how do you <laughs> right. do that? Well, when you're smart, you find, you know where the ball is going to end up. So, so as a parent, as I look back on it, I think you have to just sort of be mindful of when that gap starts and what that's why I took him to Endeavor and and it's interesting because my buddy who's the amputee who's told us to go uh you know he would he acquired his disability as an adult so he you know as a 20 year old in a uh, drunk driving accident Mm -hmm. Uh, so he didn't even really understand this as well as probably I understand it now but and Ezra wasn't slipping at eight eight years old he was crushing uh, you know uh, sports but my thought was, well, let me at least just allow him to dream uh, beyond, you know, mainstream sport. Uh, and so that was sort of the idea was just to like plant some seeds about what could, what, what was possible and get him connected to the Paralympic community. And yep. he knew a lot of people even back then, but he now knew way more. And Angel City has been a way where we've just kind of been able to keep that going. But, but also, you know, he was told, he, he's been told his whole life that he's, going to become a Paralympian and, right, right. and wow, yeah. five Paralympians. And even a guy who is one of my favorite people on this planet, Trooper Johnson. So he's the logo of the National Wheelchair Basketball Association. So he's the, our Jerry West. Right. right. He's like, Ezra's amazing at wheelchair basketball. Would you just put him in a program? He's going to make the Paralympic team if you just let him play wheelchair basketball. And I'm like, I can't even convince him to like sit in it. He'll play for fun, but like, I can't convince him to be serious about wheelchair basketball. He likes to play stand-up basketball. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So he's had like people planting like the little ideas yeah. with him. But when he, he got to see it and compete, like I didn't know anything about track and field. Like I was so clueless. I, you know, somehow I like got out of track class, you know, in, in grade school or something. I, don't know, I didn't know anything <laughs> about it. And, yeah. um, but we learned a lot about the sport. And listen, it's, you know, there's a lot of rules and, you know, the officials and their white outfits intimidating <laughs> but he just had a blast and he was good he yeah. learned how to high jump in the middle of the meet like like he just was naturally you know kind of gifted and so so that was you know for him it was a real turning point and he ended up playing basketball to your point you know for many more years i mean he just quit basketball a couple of years ago mm-hmm. to start training for 
uh, for Tokyo. But he was playing club basketball at an elite level. And his coach, who coached at the collegiate level, said he can play in college. Like, it's going to have to be, like, the right system and the right coach. But, like, he's so good. He's a specialist, you know, kind of a sharpshooter. But um, – but, but it's like, he, if he stays with this, he could play in college. So, so, you know, at some point, Ezra had to sort of just choose a path because they were both going to require massive effort. Yeah. Um, but I think he chose the right path because he makes the U.S. Paralympic track team as a 14-year-old last year. He goes to Junior Worlds, wins a bunch of medals, goes to the Pan American Games, wins two silver medals for a country uh, behind Americans in both uh, high jump and long jump. Uh, um, and then... You know, and then he goes to the world championships as the youngest athlete in the world at the, you know, the para-athletic world championships in Dubai. And wow. so this is as a 14-year-old. Yeah, it's like, remarkable. It's, it's the most amazing journey. And, and listen, the kid is very determined. And so he's already like mapping out this career that's going to go way into his 30s. And he's going to, I mean, if he can stay healthy, he'll be one of the most decorated Paralympians that, that we've ever seen. I got to ask you because it's such a fascinating thing as, as a parent, right? And we're all parents here, you know, and it's got to be one of those things where in the beginning, you know, when your initial understanding of the situation, you're like, wow, this is going to be really hard and seeing what your son's going to be dealing with. And, and, and then also your, your perception and also your wife's perception of like, oh my gosh, what is this journey that we had our whole mindset on and what it's going to be like? in the beginning and now where you're at right now, what have you learned um, uh, from Ezra, <laughs> you know, as, you know, just watching, you know, this beautiful young man become this, this amazing uh, world beater in many ways when it comes to being a, a world-class athlete, what stands out to you from the lessons you've taken over the, these last 15 years from where you were to where you are now and what he's showing you and, and your wife, what are you guys taking away from him at this yeah. point? I mean, I think, I think about this a lot because yeah. partly what we're doing with Angel City is extracting lessons from our personal experience and figuring out how do I scale that up? How do I give, you know, some of this, whatever, the juice, the magic that has helped create Ezra and make sure every, you know, man, woman, child, veteran, whatever, who steps into you know, an Angel City event mm -hmm. gets a little bit of what he's got. Um, and he's a big part of this because if he's there, he knows exactly what to do, yep. you know? So I try to bring him out to as much as I can because he instinctively knows what people need to hear. Like, it's, it's incredible. I'll uh, post it. John shared me a video, Clayton, of, of you guys doing a TV show. And, and we'll post it in the links and, and make sure that people have access to it uh, after the show. But he has a presence. Like he, he, yeah. he speaks like he's, he's a very mature. I mean, I, I don't know him at 15. I saw a video of him at like eight, but <laughs> whatever, however old he was, but he 10, 10 maybe. And, and he was 10. And, yeah. Yeah. There's just a, a sort of a presence there. And you know, right. he has that combination of the presence and the experience, the life experience. And it probably means a lot to other athletes to be able to talk to him and, ha and, and relate to somebody, you know, we all need that person we can relate to. Right. Yeah. I actually, that was one of the questions I was going to ask. Did you find uh, for, for Ezra, as he was getting into this, did he have a role model or a, uh, or any sort, sort of like a, a mentor or, or somebody that, that he looked up to and said this, I want to be like him. Yeah. I mean, he's had a lot. Yeah. You know, he's really, he's really been, he's really been blessed. We've definitely been able to surround him with, you know, he's known 
Lex Gillette and I don't know, I mean, for a long time. I mean, we, I don't even know when we first met Lex. Early days, I would say Rudy Garcia Tolson, who's a Paralympic swimmer who just decided to kind of go back and try to find a fight for, he retired, but he's, I think he's going to try to fight for a spot for Tokyo. You know, Rudy was, Rudy was just at like 15. He just had completed the Athens uh, Games. I think he won a medal in Athens as well. He was like 15. He was one of the youngest uh, yeah. athletes at Athens Paralympics. And so Rudy's been there for him. Rudy's come to the Angel Sea Games every year. Like Rudy's, Rudy and Ezra are really tight. Uh, Blake Leeper, uh, we've known Blake since he was, you know, maybe a late teenager. And we've just known a lot of these guys forever. Mm-hmm. And he's had that. But, but we, you know, we've also had sort of a, an ace in our pocket in uh, Pau Gasol. Pau Gasol, really? So, you know, my wife and I don't talk about Pau as much as we probably should in, in light of kind of Ezra's journey, but mm-hmm. we met Pau when Ezra was four. Uh-huh. And oh, wow. They were, they were on Good Morning America together. And he, Ezra had Pau on his prosthetic leg, like a picture of Pau. I had to get a shirt from like Oz, the like, you know, five and dime store, and like we put it on the prosthetic legs. So the picture of Pau on his prosthetic was the cutest thing ever. Yeah. He used to like, he had kind of looked like him. He had kind of shaggy hair. You know, when Pau was a Laker, he, he would like make us, my wife put like makeup on like this, the scruffy beard that Pau had back then. That's so funny. <laughs> and so Good Morning America is so clever, right? They hear about Ezra's story and they reach out to Pau. And so they arranged a meeting. And um, so they, they had a really sweet segment uh, on, uh, the, the, on Ezra, but then the, they surprised him. Yeah. So Pau and Ezra stay in touch. Ezra defined himself as a basketball player. You know, he played other sports, but he was a basketball player. And, you know, he, had a, he tried to get on club teams when he was younger, and the coaches just wouldn't even look at him. Like, he, he didn't have an easy run, uh, so we played rec for a long time. And, um, but Powell was always there for him. Powell, at the end of the season, Powell would take him out to the Lakers training facility and give him, like, a crazy workout. Um, and Powell forced him to play with his left. He didn't wow. like playing with his left hand. It was very hard to imagine shooting a basketball with, or dribbling with two, two fingers. Super exactly. hard. Yeah. Powell was like, you can't just go to your right side. You got to go to your left, like shoot with your left. So Pau, like how gave him, uh, it was like tough love. And they would do like three point shooting contests and Ezra and Pau would kill him and, and Ezra would cry. And Pau would like, didn't go play easy on him. Uh, but they have this amazing bond. Like Ezra's on the cover of his book, like the Spanish version of his like photography. Wow. Book. I think that relationship in those formative years, you know, call it four to 10. Mm-hmm you know, were really important. And, you know, we, you know, we got, we'd go to games, we got to see how socially, you know, he was a friend, a friend of the families. And so I think between, you know, the, the Paralympians that he had and then how um, his swagger on the basketball court was incredible. You walk out there with one leg, like, you're like, dude, how are you doing this? Um, so that's, that's what I would say. And, and, you know, to, to answer your question about like the learnings, um, yeah. what, you know, what's the formula Listen, anybody that has kids knows they come out of the shoot pre-programmed. <laughs> they don't really, yeah. right? Like there's only so yeah. much you get to say and do because they either, they might like what you like, they might not like what you like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They might find it 10, 20 years later that they like what you like, but they didn't when they were, like, you, you have no say in a lot of this. He loved sports. Yeah. He loved his sports. And so I, I guess I sort of connected 
with that, which is like, okay, I'm going to figure this out for him. He's going to mainstream. And, I, you know, we had to fight for him to get into rec leagues at times where they weren't sure. Is he going to injure other kids? In soccer, I used to like, soccer's a little treacherous, throw, you know, swinging a blade around. So we would, I would like put a pad. I would like duct tape. I'd like pad the, the blade so they yeah. couldn't argue with us. You know, just like whatever their interests are, support, support, support. Because what happens is he defined himself as an athlete, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. did not define himself as a kid with a disability. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I would argue when you're raising these kids, whatever their passion is, if they don't know what it is, you help them find it. They need a passion. It's something, whether it's art or music or anything, or just being a great student, you know, I'm just brilliant. Well, that's a good way to identify yourself. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, whatever your passion is, you support, you support, you support. So I think we did a nice job there. Um, both with the mainstream able-bodied sports and then, you know, switching over to adaptive sports over time. Can I ask you one question about, and I just, I realized like we didn't really ask about your wife or. I know, I was going to bring it up. And I was going to say, you know, you had your period of down and, and, you, and, and your connection via sports. Your wife is an actress and, and, and yeah. I assume very artistic and stuff. Uh, and, and your other kids, how, how did your wife deal with this? And how is, I actually, I, I believe you have other kids. I think you, you mentioned plural. I'm yeah, not sure. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about like how everybody else navigated, either navigated this or, or navigates it today? Well, I'll answer part of that question by finishing up the last question. Sure. Um, which is, I think the second, other than like the follow, you know, helping them with their find a passion and, and develop the passion and develop that skill and that expertise, right? And there's lots of research around sort of competence leads to confidence, yes. leads to more competence. You know, it's like this self-fulfilling mm -hmm. prophecy once you can get going. Yep. So that's really good. But I think that the other piece of it is, is sort of the self-acceptance and the, the confidence to deal with non-sport, you know, parts of life. And, um, and so we really like, and my wife gets like the lion's share of credit on that side of it because the work that she did with him in terms of giving him the tools to be successful in life beyond sport uh, are really pretty incredible. So, um, you know, she, she's been that emotional rock for him that, you know, was, it's hard to even like quantify it. I mean, yeah, it, it, of course. Like, like, like none of my kids would turn out, you know, they would be shells of who they are without that emotional side. And his stuff mm -hmm. is complicated. Mm -hmm. um, and he's right to be, you know, sad or you know when everybody's counting him out and you know not letting him participate in things or gets harassed at school or camps or whatever yeah. so what what she did was and this was some other advice we got along the way but she was the collector and aggregator of all this advice was like you got to get in front of those kids you know you got to get out in front of them so we sent uh, this amazing letter to every kid and kids parents at his school we chose a private k through 12 um, back to that, like, are they from a small town or big town? So that was our way to approximate a small town. Um, you know, she would educate the teachers ahead of time or camp counselors or any, anywhere we were sending him. It didn't always work. You still run into bullies and you still run into problems, but like we minimize a lot of that trauma. And so, you know, the self-confidence there was, was, was a big, big piece of it. And then after the Good Morning America thing, and he's four, he just sort of, he sort of just blew up. Like he was, we were getting requests to speak all over the place. Um, and so we started doing public speaking. So he's 
Um, and even before Good Morning America, because they actually filmed him speaking at a school when he was four years old. So, um, wow. Like, they like bag legs and drag all his legs and put them up. And you know, he's a little four year old talking to, he was talking to kindergartners that one time that, that uh, GMA filled. But um, so she, she's helped really create that, the sort of the emotional strength to share your story. And I think people with disabilities tend to be shy and don't like to always share their stories. We've taken the exact opposite approach. We put this kid out. He's been sharing and telling his story since he was literally four years old. Mm -hmm. And so when you do that, it just becomes matter of fact. It's yeah. like kind of no big deal when you get, when you share it repeatedly. And she's so good at helping him create a presence in front of media or in front of audiences. And so, yeah, so he's done, you know, we day 16, 18,000 people in these basketball arenas and he's not even nervous. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, are you so nervous walking out there? He's like, nah, not really. You know, <laughs> like, so yeah. he's a, you know, he gets that from her, the confidence. He's a real, he's a performer yeah. at some level, but yeah. So she, but, she just gets a lot of credit. And I think like, Gosh, I don't know. I think her, you know, she's an immigrant. She didn't have like, it wasn't like all super easy for her to, you know, figure school out, learning English and, and all that stuff. Um, she has a lot of like empathy. Actors, mm -hmm. you know, actors tend to have a lot of empathy, but mm -hmm. uh, so she really, you know, she sort of um, leads the way with, with all of our boys uh, in that, in that regard. Is he, is he looked up to by um, his siblings? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think any, any older sibling is, um, and you know, unless they're just really mean. But, uh, <laughs> sure. I mean, not, not, not 100% of the time, but yeah, generally maybe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do they see, do they, do they understand, um, I guess, kind of who Ezra is to the rest of the world? Yeah, they do. I mean, it's a tricky thing for us because mm -hmm. it's sort of like having a celebrity in the family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So we're cognizant of that. And, you know, we, to some extent, try to sort of, you know, downplay a little bit and upplay other, other aspects of the, the family. But, but, you know, they get to travel. I mean, we, you know, last year when Ezra had these three big trips uh, planned, you know, I went to Switzerland and Dubai uh, with him, but the whole family went to Peru. We went to Lima to watch him compete the Pan American Games. And then we all went to sacred valley and we did machu picchu so they're starting you know and we were planning to go to tokyo we should be in tokyo you know should have just be getting back from tokyo right exactly now. Yeah. Uh, yeah yeah so um, so you know we're trying to like show them that it's it's not all you know just benefiting ezra that there's that sort of this collective it is really we are a team and that the brother's an important part of getting him where he is and they should be you know beneficiaries uh, along the way as well. Uh, so. Are they following suit in, in terms of uh, pursuing sports in the same way or other things with that same type of uh, uh, drive and ambition or is it just... Yeah. I mean, they're 8 and 11. 11-year-old, uh, yeah. he's, he's just so he's, so... he's talented in so many areas, it's hard to say. He hasn't been, he hasn't been a big sports guy until more recently, so now he's yeah. sort of um, and he's a distance runner, actually. So, uh, so John, we may need to be talking. But uh, count me he, in. Count me in. <laughs> he, he just, and again, it's funny because he hasn't done a lot of sports growing up, but now he's mm -hmm. he sort of enjoys running. And I think he's already figured out the runner's high because he can just go. Like, 
go. Oh, it's beautiful. Uh, so that's really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. my, my little guy, eight-year-old, um, he's probably cut a little more from the Ezra cloth. Uh, you okay. know, he's, he's a very physical kid, loves, loves sports. You, you must know? have a rowdy household. I have three, three boys there, right? It's, a- <laughs> it's like, it's funny. It's, not, yeah. it's nonstop. I mean, I'm like struggling to find a little quiet with this, the, the world, uh, the zoom world that we're in now. Oh, I believe it. I believe yeah. it. Yeah. Well, um, Clayton, can we talk now? We've, we've got tons of background and it's perfect because now I think, can you talk a little bit about the role that Angel City Sports plays? You talked about how, why the catalyst for creating it, to create opportunities for athletes in California. Yeah. Um, but I think at this point, it's grown bigger than just putting on an event for, for athletes to, to perform in. Where do you see your role in, in the adaptive athletics uh, with the Angel City Sports? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So there's a lot of, a lot of layers to this. So at the end of the day, what we do is we do training and development of athletes through clinics. And so most of them are more geared towards a newer athlete to just get them introduced to the sports and get them started. Um, and then we, uh, we have a lot of equipment. And so you can't really start people without having the equipment. Mm-hmm. And if they wanted to pursue it, you we can loan them the equipment. To so this would be like a wheelchair basketball, like somebody who wants to start doing wheelchair basketball, you can help them out with exactly. the appropriate yeah, wheelchair or something like this. They might come to our clinic and they might go, oh, I, you know, if I had a chair, I could play at my local park or I could shoot around in my backyard or whatever mm-hmm. I got. So we might loan them a, a chair. Uh, and then we have sort of the competitive piece, which is really where we started. I mean, that's our birthplace. So in 2015, we the first thing we did was the Angel City Games and modeled it on the Endeavor Games, which is what Ezra and I had, had uh, attended in 2013. Mm-hmm. And I believe, and I would think you both would agree with like, where you really feel like an athlete is when you're competing, when you're mm-hmm. lining up against somebody and it's all on the line. Like, yeah, you feel good when you're training and da 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 but like when you're, when you're in a competition, it doesn't mean it's the Olympics or the Paralympics, but just any, any kind of competition is pretty amazing. I mean, I've done a lot of triathlons and even these like little mom and pop triathlons, you're like, Ooh, you know, you're like, <laughs> you're engaged. Um, yeah. You may not, you know, I don't do very well, but like, I'm like, Oh, okay. Let's go. Not to cut you off, but yeah. the, the first experience with running for me that made me love running was just a local Turkey trot 5k on a Thanksgiving morning. My uncle took me out and he was like, just follow everybody, just run as fast as you can and just, and have fun. And you call everybody. Yeah. I, and then I beat all the high school sophomores or whatever, you know, at freshman and the coach was like, Hey, do you live up here? Do you want to come to my high school? And I was sort of like, Oh, running is fun, right? Like, this is cool. Like the whole yeah. environment, people are nice. Yeah. You got a medal, you know, all these kind of things were, were the kind of stuff that, you know, so yeah. I, yeah, that's it. It's a competition. Our, our kind of ethos is sort of centered around competition a bit because we started with the games and because we believe it really does it sort of transforms in your experience mm-hmm. um, so so we believe that and so that's kind of what we're known in the community is like we take the sport more seriously than others mm-hmm. so we're gonna be more thoughtful about the instruction we're gonna be more thoughtful about sort of you know having having a process and you know like we're trying to move you you know kind of through the sales funnel, not that everybody's going to make the Paralympics again, but like if there's any interest, we want to help you find that, that club team, that travel team for what's your basketball, whatever it is. And it's not not that we'll all do it all, but we'll find partners and, and figure that out with you. Um, 
so so that's sort of at a at a very basic level what we do. Last year we did about over seventy clinics throughout the year, so we're doing stuff almost every weekend all over Southern California. About a hundred pieces of equipment that we can loan out or use in our own events, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, and then you know we do the Angel City Games, which now we have a, a title sponsor, the Hartford. And then we're starting to sort of get competitive opportunities in other events. So like triathlons are, are giving us free spots. So we'll place adaptive athletes in those. And so we'll do more of that um, just to kind of expand the, 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 the access uh, to competitive opportunities. Are the athletes sort of members of the Angel City, like, is it like a club organization that they join? Or is it just, the, are the clinics, like each clinic is an individual entity and you just sign up for that clinic if you want to, if you want to go to it. Yeah. Mostly it's just sort of a, a one-off thing. Come mm-hmm. if you can make it. Um, we, we take a little heat in the community uh, that we don't have programs. And so when people say that in the, in the adaptive sports world, it means that you don't have consistent repeated programming. You don't have a wheelchair basketball program where you know, you do practices and then they enter, yeah. you know, in a tournament or whatever. Right. Like, um, and we, we've sort of taken the, the stance so far that we don't know that we have the numbers. Uh-huh. And so we'll get there or we'll find partners to help with the programming. But I'd rather, I'd rather just get the database big. And so when you show up to something, there's a lot of people people can kind of find their own way once they realize what sport they want to do. So I don't think that the onus is on us to have programming everywhere, but, um, but I think we'll get there. Uh, we just, I just feel like the numbers are so small. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, and, oh, so go ahead, John. Oh, no, 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 please keep going. I was going to say a funny, a funny thing that um, some, some people in the community told us early days was, you know, you can't start with a competition you have to start with programming. You have to start with like a little program and build it and da, 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 da. And I just thought, well, I, I don't even know if I could find any corporate sponsors for like 10 kids in a gym playing wheelchair basketball. Right. Mm. Who wants to sponsor that? I mean, I'm sure there's some sponsors out there, but like that doesn't seem like big and, you know, like it just seems like that's, that's just sort of thinking small. Um, and yeah. so we started with a competition because I thought, I think I can find sponsors for this thing and create this amazing experience. And then we can back into the other programming, which is exactly what we did. We still have work to do, but like, you know, we did over 20 sports last year, 70 clinics throughout the year, almost every weekend of the year, you could join us for some type of sport. You know, we don't discriminate. So all ages, all physical disabilities, veterans, civilians, you name it. I got elderly, I got toddlers. Like we're all in this together. Um, And so, so yeah, so that's kind of funny. So we were told to sort of not do what we what we did, and um, and the other funny piece of advice, which is it makes sense for lots of people, but they said, well, you can't just you can't be everything to everyone. And right. I'm like, maybe I don't know. They said, well, you should just do kids. They <laughs> said, just do kids, just do kids, because people love to to give you they'll give you money for kids. Like people love to sponsor kids. So you just do kids, or just do veterans. Um, and they're right. There are there is probably I could probably do better financially if we were just focused on kids or veteran, probably. But, but what's interesting is kids, they need this, but kids sort of figure out life. They kind of have like, they're kind of just, they just kind of figuring it out. Now some kids slip into depression and because they get bullied at schools and all this stuff, but like the kids are kind of cool. They're kind of okay. It's yeah. later in 
teens and, and even into early adulthood where they really, they really start to slide. The little ones don't even, it's great to have this, but they don't need it. And the veterans, they have really good access to adaptive sports if they want it. If they seek it out uh, between the VA and the Paralyzed Veterans Association of America, the Wound Warriors, like there's a lot of resources out there. It's, I'm sure it's not enough, but it's, it's a decent amount. Adults that live with a physical disability are so screwed. They are so in their heads. They get depressed. They get addicted to pain meds. They get knocked out of the workforce. The adults are the ones that need this more than everybody. And so for us, when, when I hear that advice, I, I think you don't really know the community that well. And also, when you put these three groups together, it, I call it a circle of inspiration. Yeah. Because everybody loves the veterans. And the veterans need to know that they're welcome in mainstream society. So that's like a two-way thing. Yep. Kids need to see adults, whether they're vets or civilians, functioning at a high level, competing and going after it and knowing that their life isn't like destined to some other, right? It's like they can do it. And then every, the adults and the vets are always inspired by having a little kid who doesn't think about their disability. They're just like, click, 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 click. So like it works to put everybody together. We have to segment, I think, some of this programming going forward for funding purposes, which is sort of funny um, that we're now going to kind of back into that strategy. But we've kind of made it where we are to be really with the largest Paralympic uh, event in the country now, uh, multi-sport Paralympic event in the country, and one of the larger programs because we've sort of not followed the traditional path. Uh, so it's, it is kind of funny. You know, it's, uh, what you said it, I don't think you said it when we started the recording, but you said something about like you just kind of look for the, uh, the crack. And the situation, like, you know, you don't approach, for example, like um, interviewing or maybe getting to know somebody, right? It's like you can get something on paper, but you're like, I, I don't really need that. If you're already in front of me, then you're here for a reason. Let me let me see what's in your soul kind of a thing. And um, I feel like you're doing that with the world of adapted athletics. You're like, okay, yeah, I get it. And you're not necessarily wrong. Right. But you're looking for the outcome. And that's what I always talk to people about in general. I'm like, you know, even when I was a kid, I'd say, oh, I want to be the best runner in the world. And everyone's like, oh, that's pretty weird. You're a basketball player. You've never run before. And now all of a sudden you want to be this thing that you saw on TV. And I'm like, yeah, it makes sense to me. But for everybody else, when I say I want to be the best runner in the world and I've never run before, it makes no sense to them whatsoever. But I see something that they can't see. And no, I choose sure. to look at it differently. I'm like, there are so many ways to look at this one thing that I'm saying but most people are stuck looking at it only one way. And there's like, this is the only way that it works. That's uh, absolutely not true. And so that's what you're doing. And you yeah. backed yourself into a situation where you created a demand, you yeah. proved that there was a need. And then because that demand was there, you're like, now it makes sense to have a program. <laughs> you know? And so well, it's kind of interesting yeah, that you did what they're saying, but you're like, other things have to be put in place. And I just want to say really quick, you got people started. And I think that seems to be a, a common challenge in that world. It's like, you got them out. You got them out. You showed them, hey, look at this thing. And they're like, oh, I want to do this all the time. Now you have a demand for this thing that you're like, I'm not too sure if there's a demand. Now they're telling you, the people that you want to serve, they're actually saying, I want this thing, Clayton. Yeah. No, I, I think you're right. And, and as you're talking, I was just realizing nothing we're doing is, is truly innovative or new. It's just maybe not all done the way we've been doing it and maybe not all done in the adaptive sports world because 
Mm. If you um, if you look at like what we've created with the Angel Seed game, um, and you know it, it's not as big as you would hope, because 425 athletes last year, but still the biggest event of its kind in the country. So first of all, there's celebrities. Yep. You don't know who's going to show up. Michael Pena, my wife did crash with Michael Pena. Pena showed up one year, just popped in, just yeah. hanging out, brought his kid. Um, Christian Bale, Adam Sandler, Rob Schneider, Kim Raver from Grey's Anatomy, Gabriel Luna, the new Terminator, like boom, 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 boom. Like these people, you know, Tracy Murray won a championship, NBA championship with the Rockets. Um, yeah. Brandon Bedejo won a championship with the Ravens, UCLA guy. Um, they're just everywhere. You don't even know where you're going to run into somebody. And so I didn't come up with that strategy. That's an old, old strategy. But they, the celebs tend to really appreciate what we're doing, and they come out. And so uh, Christian, Bale, and Sandler really helped us put, like, put Angel City on the map that first year, 2015, because oh, wow. word, I was having trouble getting word out to the, you know, the athletes that are already in these sports around the country, and we were unproven. And, and Sandler really did it more than Christian because Sandler walked out onto the track in the middle of a track meet and got mobbed. Yeah. And I was on the, I was on the walkie-talkie. These days they don't really trust me with a walkie-talkie, so I'm, I'm not really like that important. Um, but the back the first couple of years, I, I got to have a walkie-talkie and like actually be a part of the team. But, um, but I was like, I think i got to shut the track meet down. Like, let's see what – because I can't – I'm not going to kick Sandler off. And the kids, everyone is mobbing me, signing shirts, taking pictures. I mean, Sandler's like the man of the people. He's just like, yeah, the, yeah. Just his favorite. So word got out in the adaptive sports world that Sandler and Christian Bale came that year too. He was, he was injured. He was working through an injury. And so he was a little more low key um, uh, in the stands, but he talked to a bunch of athletes. And so people yep. knew, people knew he was there. And Christian's come back many times. Sandler's come back. And so word got out like, Dude, Sandler came to the, you know, Christian Bale, like Batman came to the, the games. So, like, okay, strat- that's not my strategy. I just stole it. Right? <laughs> yeah, I just stole yeah, it. yeah. Um, we do, and, and, and John and I were talking about this the other day, we, we do swag. We, we, we really hook the athletes up. I have all, I have Lakers, Dodgers, Angels, um, you know, Galaxy, all the pro teams give us swag. I had studios. You know, one year Sandler gave us, like, like a thousand DVDs of, of, of uh, Happy Madison DVDs. Everybody got a bunch of DVDs. Um, yeah, every year it's different, but you're going to get this bag full of cool stuff, right? Yep. And, uh, and so, like, those are not new ideas. It just hadn't been implemented at sort of a big scale in, in, in our space. And then, like, and then we do a lot of work around community building, which some of our other events around the country do that really nicely. But, like, we have a stage, and so there's like musicians with disabilities performing the whole weekend long. If yeah. music be your thing, um, you know, like we, we just like we're constantly innovating in terms of the the events that wrap around the sport. So we want you to show up, and we've been at UCLA the last five years. We don't want you to show up at eight in the morning and not leave until nine or ten that night, so exhausted but so inspired to get your rest, so you can pop up at eight in the morning the next day and do it again. I so. Know. Like, I think there's something, like so it's like a it's, it's like a Tony Robbins like transformational weekend. That's kind of how we see it. It's mm. it's not really about the sport. What mm-hmm. you know, everything you're saying right now. We've had a couple guests on, and one is Tracy Sunlin, who we invented and created the Rock and Roll Marathon. And and I don't know if you've you've connected with him, but it, part of his whole message about it, from the beginning of his career was, it's not about 
you can't just have a competition. It has to be an event. It has to be an, an experience. experience. It has yeah. to be an experience. And that is right. I mean, yeah. and, and you know, we just, yeah. we just had the pleasure of talking to Willie Banks, uh, world record, triple, triple jumper. He's going to be on the, you know, we'll, it'll come out at some point in the future after we've recorded yeah. this one, but before yours comes out probably. So it'll be temporarily kind of weird here. But in any case, he was talking about as a, as a, an athlete, it's, you have to create an experience. You have to create a connection. You have to create a bond with the, with the people who are watching something memorable, you know, in some way. And, you know, I, I, what I think your really smart approach to start with events and, and actually John really nailed it with the, especially with the clinics, getting started is so hard. We, we put so much of our energy at Gobi more in, in terms of what we want to do. We put so much into thinking about how can we help people get started? Because you know, getting started is way harder than continuing. It's just, it's so much harder. You no, said it. Right. Comp, comp, competence leads to uh, confidence. It's like, yes. and, and once you start to feel like you can do it, and we're seeing it, we have the Just One Challenge, and it, it's the coolest thing to hear these stories from people who are like, I don't want to do push-ups, and then we say, well, just do one a day, and they're like, that's silly. And I said, just try for 30 days, and they go, by the end of it, they're like, this has changed my life. Why? Because they opened up this door to doing something that they'd never done before, then they start looking, looking at their life differently. That's what you guys have, have established with Angel City Sports and the Angel City Games. It's, it's honestly, it's so exciting. I love these stories, these kind of stories, because it's the thing that changes everything, you know, right. just opening the door. It comes down to this idea. You mentioned, Clayton, how everybody said you have to start with programs. But the, but the problem with the program is there's a commitment. There's a bigger commitment yeah. than you're probably ready for. Oh, when you don't know so what you want to do, but yeah, going to right, one event, like right. one blowout track meet or going to a clinic for a weekend to just try to have, yeah. have a good day. That is a low commitment entry into a really positive community and experience. And it's, it makes a lot of sense to me in retrospect. If you had asked me, you know, six years ago, this is my strategy. Does, is it going to work? I might've told you, no, you got to do programs, <laughs> but, like, <laughs> but like, you know, in retrospect, I can look back at it and say, no, it makes a lot of sense because it's removing friction and it's yeah. removing commitment in the beginning. And it's just giving people an opportunity to do it at their own pace and to, and to have an amazing experience that inspires them to take the next step. And that's all you can really ask for in trying to, you know, if you're trying to build a sport, you're trying to build a, yeah. build a company, you're trying to build something is every, you just have to hope that your, every experience you create just leads to another one. Right. And hundred percent. And like, I've, I'm a little conflicted because the games is not sustainable. Uh -huh. I can't do the games all year long. That's and right. so when you come to the games, it feels like a Hollywood boondoggle weekend or something, right? Because right. like, it's unlike anything in, in the adaptive sports world. And I want it to continue to stay in that space where it just you just blow your mind. It's the event of the year you never, ever want to miss. That's right. Um, and the vision for that, by the way, is to add all the summer Paralympic sports. So get up to 22 summer Paralympic sports but all ages, all abilities. You don't have to qualify. You don't have to be good at any sports. Wow. We'll teach you the sports, and then you can compete. And sometimes competing against Paralympians, like, so fun, so cool. Yeah. Uh, and mostly we use Paralympians for coaches who create this amazing warmth and energy to every – and even the clinics we do. But when you start looking at all the clinics and what's, the, like, the common thread for, throughout the year, it's something really close to what you were just saying, Brian, which is – it's about creating a sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. 
That's the starting point. If you don't do that, you failed. You failed your job. And now it's not that hard to do, by the way, once you just aggregate people and you, you bring a, a welcoming kind right, atmosphere and you, you, you can sort of spark it and then it just starts to, it starts to roll. Mm-hmm. And now, once you set the standard for how you treat a new athlete who, who rolls in, you don't have to do it yourself because, and I'll give you an example. There was, we do a lot of golf, adaptive golf. I'm sorry for the phone. And <laughs> it's awesome. We got, we got, uh, I got some distractions going on. Maybe can we turn the phone off? Um, uh, but once you get it rolling, so we were doing a golf clinic pre pre coronavirus, and mm-hmm. um, it's we do it on Thursdays. It's hard for people to get off work and school, so it's not a huge. It's usually like ten, you know, ten athletes maybe show up. But this one day, I'm there, and this guy rolls in who I've never met before in my life, you know, and I know a lot of the athletes in Southern California that are doing adaptive sports. I've been doing it for many years. I mean, it's certainly a solid decade of attending everything I could, you know, I'm like, I've never seen this guy before. And, um, I couldn't even get to him before, you know, other players, other coaches, like everybody came over to like hear his story and how did he find us? And like everybody was saying the same things that I would say to them. So it's, it's already like, it's working. You know what I mean? Like it, it's rolling, but that sense of belonging—it's why I still try to go to as many of our events as I can. Oh, which is, I'm just monitoring this. I'm making sure there's not some athlete in the corner that's not getting the love. That doesn't feel feel that mm-hmm. connection. And sometimes there are, and it's not my fault, and nobody can fix it. It's not—it's not a solvable problem. But I, I'm there to monitor that. You know, that's like, that's the only thing I do. I don't check people in. I don't have any real official job anymore. I don't even get a walkie talkie at the games, but, um, but that's like, it's like, that's like the culture and the, right. And the, the, the environment we're trying to create, it's, it's about that. Because when you do that to your point, Brian, then you start them down that journey and you don't know where it can lead. And that's why we like to do a ton of sports. I like, I mean, we're doing over 20 sports a year and why, once we get the games at that scale with all Paralympic sports. How cool is that to be able to try all these different sports and find what you like or find that coach that's going to take you to the next level or just find some friends that you can play with on a regular, whatever it is, you don't even know what you're looking for and you don't even know how to do it, but we just lay it all out for you. Super easy, super accessible. And when I think about what you were saying about that, you know, that experience, which is sort of the same thing as, you know, creating that sense of blocking. The number one problem in the adaptive and Paralympic sports community is we can't find athletes. Really? Number one problem. So you ask my peers around the country, ask any of them. As a nonprofit person, you're supposed to say money, mm-hmm. right? Like that's what you should say. Yeah. But they won't say that. They will say athletes, every one of them. And that's really interesting. So somebody has to solve this at the beginning of the funnel. And I feel like that's that's why I don't care as much about that ongoing programming because there's so much work to be done at the beginning of that funnel of that, creating that accessible, fun, um, low barrier, low cost, right? To entry. I mean, we raise a ton of money for travel grants to get people to the Angel League Games so they're not even out of pocket coming. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so 
it's, it's the beginning of the funnel because once you get them in, they will find their way. They, they can figure it out once they're in, but if getting in is so complicated, you're stuck. I have one, one, one question about this, and it goes back to, in some sense, it goes back to your, your, your high, the, the reason for Angel City Sports, you mentioned going to Oklahoma, and you were saying, man, like, why do I have to go to Oklahoma to have this experience? So right. you brought it to Southern California. But then what, has me, what, I have, what I'm thinking about now is there's probably a lot of people on the East Coast going, why do I have to go to California to experience the Angel City Games? Right. So, uh, is that something that you've considered or that you're, that you're, you're thinking about is, is taking the angel city concept to other people? Yeah, so definitely. And this is a delicate thing because there's, there are a lot of programs out there and Uh people are sensitive. Territorial. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, we do um, we do have we have a, a team in Oregon, and so they practice. They do track and swimming. They do a little tennis. So um, and they, if you're really interested, we would get you in to kind of join them. Uh, they're not doing like big open clinics, but I'm getting them there. Yeah. Um, and we will over time kind of replicate what we have in Southern California up there. There are some big, pretty big, well established organizations up there. So we're just sort of finding our way. And yeah, that makes sense stepping on toes too much. Um, but, um, but there's many other parts of the country that have very little programming. And so uh, we've talked to people in many other parts of the country. So I think if, like, we'll, we already have a national brand, but I think we will have a national footprint, but I don't think it'll look like something that you, it'll look different than, you know, if you were McDonald's or The Gap or wherever. Right, right, right. Like if there's a city big or small, that has a really good program that's an entry point, even if they're not all the sports we might be, or, you know, even if there's, like if there's a really good program that's well-known in the community and, and people can find them easily, mm-hmm. we're probably not going into that community. Like I'll give you an example. There's a great program in Spokane, Washington. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how close they are to the fire, so hopefully they're all, they're all, being, they're all safe up there right now. But, yeah. um, and they don't do all the sports. Like we do way more sports than they do. But they're really good at what they do. Right. And so if you have a disability in that community, you can go to them and they will take amazing care of you. And even if they, you want to do a sport that they don't offer, they'll help, you know, they'll help you and they'll get you to the right place. So um, I would never even consider going into that, that region. That so, you know, so we will, we will have a footprint that I think ultimately like fills in the really glaring gaps in mm-hmm. access um you know the, uh, you find know, the cracks yeah. <laughs> yeah we'll find the cracks um, yeah. <laughs> and, and and then and then i think you know like one of our goals in southern cal uh we're not there yet in oregon but like how do i like rise all boats you know like how do i yeah. promote the other programs that are around there around in our area or yeah or, i was gonna or, bring that up yeah. so, so we do operate in, in Southern Cal especially as sort of like the, we're kind of the umbrella because we do all the sports. And w- so we don't even have the technical expertise in many sports. So we bring other organizations in and partner with them. Mm-hmm. Um, some, you know, governing body level people, but also some local, local folks that just have a little wheelchair rugby program or whatever. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so sort of finding a way, you know, Southern California was sort of wide open you know, for us to sort of just take that position, we won't probably be able to do that in every community, but 
but again, thinking, okay, how do we, how do we collaborate and, you know, um, bring everybody up, bring everybody together. And listen, my, my just, I'm an old M and a guy. So like, you know, my thought would be over time, let's consolidate this industry. Let's, mm -hmm. let's have fewer entities, but big and strategic and clever and growth minded. Mm -hmm. um, so that would be like, if I could really dream, I would say, well, let's not have 10,000 or however many nonprofits we have right now. Yeah. Let's have, you know, a hundred that are yeah. crushing it. But to, the, I, to that a point, to that point though, this is great because I think we are kind of, you know, uh, wrapping it up here as far as uh, we can keep going, obviously, but I think that, you know, we got to do a part two because this is just too good. This is, we're going to have to bring it back. But I think that that leads to a good point, though. The, the future, you know, like the question I would love to ask you as it relates to this question, because we do ask this one a lot. And, and what's the future for you? What's the goals? This and that. What do you really, what, what do you see this, be, what do you see, where do you see Adapted Athletics going? You know, how, how big and mainstream can, do you think this could become um, in your yeah. mind? It's a really good question. So we were, we were on a call maybe early in the pandemic uh, with essentially like, uh, like the National Paralympic Organization in Asia. And they worked for like the Minister of Sport. And they said a word that I thought was really interesting. They said, we are, we are trying to encourage uh, mass participation mm. in adaptive sports. And I, ever since she said that, I thought that's like, that's such a beautiful way to say it. So what does that mean? That means you really have to solve sort of the, you th these are the three problems that I think about every day, which is, the awareness is incredibly low. People think we are Special Olympics. They don't understand anything about this movement. It's not on TV. It's not anywhere. It's nothing they understand. And you tell them, oh, wheelchair basketball or Blade Runner, they kind of go, oh, yeah, i kind of seen that. But then they don't, make, they don't connect the dots. So, like, nobody knows what this is. Nine out of ten people say, I've never heard of it. I have no idea what you're talking about. And then the one out of ten is confused with Special Olympics. So like, it's basically nobody knows what this is. Number two is just that availability of programming is super inconsistent, you know, and the, the quality is, is inconsistent. So lots of challenges in programming. It's, if you wanted to be an adaptive swimmer, I don't even have like, I have some options for you, but like, I don't have like the, the one of, I have like great golf coaches, for example, and some great track coaches, but I don't have great, you know, my swim coaches are amazing, but I don't know that many that are really dialed into the adaptive side yet. Right. We're, we're building. So like the programming and availability is not there. And then the participation numbers are terrible. So um, when I run the numbers in Southern Cal, I think that maybe one in a thousand to maybe one in 2000 people living with a physical disability are connected to any of the adaptive sports programs in Southern California. Wow. That's really so, low. Yeah. It's incredibly low. And if you look at Special Olympics, it's way higher as a percentage. That's you know, they're serving 20, probably 25,000 people now in Southern California. Now they can, they can just like put money into the school districts and kind of tap into a lot of numbers there. But still, we're not even scratching the surface. And that's, I think that some of those people, other people, the 999 people or, or 1,999 people, are active. They, maybe they're going to the gym or they're doing this or that, 
but they're not un, they're not getting the benefits of that right the community and the sense of belonging mm-hmm. and they probably don't really understand the possibilities around all the different sports or if you wanted to be elite and compete or even if you just wanted to sort of like be on a team or, you know, whatever, like they probably don't understand this community at all. And so they're still very socially isolated, mm-hmm. even if they are going to the gym, you know, they might get a lot of like, Hey, it's cool that you come to the gym on one leg or in a chair or whatever. They get a lot of like attaboys at the gym, mm-hmm. right? That's not feeding your soul. That's not giving you the confidence to, to tackle life. And, and, you know, you talked Ryan, a little bit about like the decision of when to switch over to adaptive sports. And um, I think if you kids can mainstream, I think it's super interesting that, you know, uh, there's a Katie Holloway played uh, basketball at Cal State Northridge on, on a prosthetic leg. When I was a kid uh, growing up, there was Jim Abbott, the pitcher for the, for the angels. Right. And he was like, yeah, that, like, that, like, that figure like, whoa, like, like you can do this. Griffin on the Seahawks. He just got waived from the Seahawks. I heard by the way, mm-hmm. um, Oscar Pistorius competing in the Olympics. Like those stories are incredible and they're very good for us because they raise awareness. Um, But at the end of the day, my observation is that is a really emotionally stressful path and you can do it. But I think that the best way to do that is, is also to do adaptive sport or Paralympic sport because that's where you're going to sort of refill your tank to then go you know, kind of duke it out with, with coaches that don't know anything about your disability, right. frankly don't care in many cases. Um, you know, um, teammates that are dismissive, uh, competitors that are dismissed, like that's a really emotionally hard, and I've watched this with Ezra because I, I made him do swim team in junior high and uh, for two years. And dude, to be in a little skimpy bathing suit on the pool deck with no leg. You can't even, you get out of the pool and you can't walk. You need crutches or somebody's to bring you your leg. So it's like, yeah, like the, the self-confidence to pull that off. Oh, dude, I think you, you have to have adaptive sports as a compliment to get that. And it, because some people say, well, we're all just trying to work ourselves out of a job because there should be inclusion in sports. So, you know, you shouldn't need to have the separate system. It should just be everywhere else. It should be in high schools and boys and girls clubs. And, right, right, right. You know, but like, but, but that's, it's just too hard. It's, you, 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 you can't, right. You, you can't do that every day. You got Like when do no. you, like, when do yeah. you breathe? Yeah. I, it's funny, you know, it's what a perfect answer or response because it, it, it's, uh, it's made me think about the two things that you said in the beginning, the role of sport in and of itself in anybody's life and the impact that sport has on, on, on a person and the, the, the shaping of their character, the, the shaping of the way that they look at the world, the way that they look at other people, self-confidence, all these different things, the things that sport can give you as you participate in the, and as you compete, really, um, because there's, there's so many different levels of what sport can do with you, for you based on what you put into it. And then the other side of it, too, though, is, is this sense of like, okay, even if you are somebody with disability or with a disability and you're participating uh, against in sport against other um, uh, athletes who are able-bodied, that's great for a while, but the reason why it doesn't start to make sense is because of what it does to the person from a sense of belonging. You know, it's not that 
athletes with disabilities can't compete against athletes who are able-bodied. That's not the point. That's not the point of sports, you know? And I can say this with 100% clarity as, as, as a 38-year-old who at 14 was inspired to become an Olympian and did not achieve that in some sense, you know, what I had set out to achieve. And, and for many years, I defined my experience, my successes, and I was pretty damn successful. And I defined it as a failure for many right. years. I had to reconcile not winning an, an Olympic medal, not actually competing in the games. I made a team and it was officially like, oh yeah, John, you're an Olympian. And I'm like, eh, kind of, you know, right. uh, but you know, I broke four minutes in a mile as an African-American. I did all this stuff. I did this stuff for UCLA. It's so cool. But I'm like, I felt like I was a failure. And I'm like, wait a minute. If the whole journey in my sporting career was for that, what the heck was I doing this for? And my point in saying that is that when somebody with disability is competing in a sport um, and they want to have this sense of self-worth and, and feel this sense of like belonging, really, yeah. that is a requirement that they have to be in an environment that actually nurtures that because ultimately it isn't about the sport. It's about the person and the definition with which they define their, themselves and their self-worth in society. Yeah. That's the point. Uh, That's uh, the uh, point. Uh, you know, and that's why I, I, I'm so excited uh, for our, our company to dive into that world because, in my opinion, it's separate in terms of it's, there is a distinction, but it's one and the same. It, yeah. it, and, 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 and there is a, a demographic and a, and a community that is being overlooked by the greater yeah. society, and that's unacceptable. You know, well, that's unacceptable no, in, I, my, I, in my I, mind. I, you know, I am, I am, I am. Absolutely motivated by that uh, as well. What's really cool about how you just wrapped that up, John, is you're 100% right uh, about the importance of sport for this community. Mm -hmm. Two other kind of thoughts to think about here. One is for so many of this, these people, they thought sports were impossible. Mm. They didn't think they were possible. And so when you back to that funnel, once you kind of get them in the funnel, they understand this is possible. I believe you start to unlock their dreams beyond mm -hmm. sport. Mm -hmm. Because when you do something, if you walk on fire at a Tony Robbins event, he, his point is you thought you couldn't do that. Now you can. What else in your life can you do? So that's really interesting about this movement, which is physical movement in a sports setting feels impossible to them. Yep. And in some cases they're told it's, it's impossible. You'll never be an athlete. You'll never go for, you never do a marathon because people are uneducated. They don't understand about adaptive sports. So they give them a bunch of negativity, which is oftentimes wrong. You could have a disability situation where maybe that certain sports are, are off limits for some reasons, but generally speaking, our, our athletes can do just about anything. It's just going to be done differently. So that's message is not getting to people after injury or after birth or whatever. So, so that's super, you know, that's super interesting. And then what works, what, what makes the system work so beautifully to foster self-confidence is that adaptive sport and Paralympic sport is structured for fairness. Mm -hmm. The classification system, the way athletes are grouped and organized Right, it's a right. system of fairness, and it is not perfect, but it is so elegant 
and amazing because if you imagine, I, I just came up with this new example as you're talking, John. Imagine you were a boxer, but there was no weight divisions. Mm -hmm. So what's the self-confidence of the little guys or even the middleweights? They're going to get killed by those heavyweights, mm -hmm. crushed by the heavyweights. It's not fair. And so now boxing is only for the heavyweights because the other guys are going to get killed and they would their self-confidence would be nothing. They would never make it anywhere, right? Yeah. And so that's, yeah. what the, that's what the classification system, obviously you have you know, male and female, you have age brackets in, you know, in the endurance sports. You know, like, there's a reason why we organize athletes the way we do by sport. And in our case, it's by disability and gender and age if you're a junior, right? Once you mm -hmm. kind of move into mm -hmm. adults, you're just, there's not really, we don't do a lot of age grouping for the older guys, but if we were big enough of a movement, we could. So this is something that's overlooked. I have to explain classification over and over and over again to parents yeah. and families because they just don't understand it. And it seems scary to them to have a medical evaluation of their child or their whoever, but it's nothing. It's a PT exam. It's like, so it's easy. And once you have that class, you now measure yourself against people with a relatively simmer, similar disability. And oh my gosh, it unlocks confidence. Yeah. Because it's fair. Yeah. If you're in an environment that's not fair, how are you supposed to be strong and keep going after it? Yeah. I mean, imagine, John, if you were running and somebody cheated every race and won, you're going to quit. You yeah, can't. You you can't win that battle. You're not going to win. You'd be confused, you know, because you're like, wait a minute, how, what am, how am I supposed to think about all of this? And that's, and then I love how Brian has taught me about the, the, the concept of friction, you know, and I did learn that from Brian in the middle of our podcast. <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, that's what, that's what that's called. Oh, I know, I know friction, <laughs> you know, but it's funny, but it's in, I'll lead this into our last question, but I'll just tell you this much. This is crazy this is how cool and this there is such a big reason why it just was it made sense to me getting involved with um uh, the world of adapted athletics i truly believe that this is a representation this how we were as a society totally acting as if that that world doesn't really exist if mm -hmm. I don't see it, it's like it doesn't exist. And, right. um, and I feel like that is, some, it, that is a theme. And I say this as a black man living in America right now, just to be clear. <laughs> That's a theme in so many areas of society that is, again, unacceptable. And it's scary because if you don't understand it, if it's not a part of your life, if you don't see it, it doesn't exist. And yet there are, as fires are actually burning, I mean, that's, these are things that we pretend aren't happening, and yet it's right in front of us, you know? And we just choose, for whatever reason, not to really participate or take responsibility for improving that area of society and our communities, even though it's a part of our community and our society. And I think bringing this 
attention to it and, and, and highlighting the beauty of it and the importance of it is really what the ambition is of our brand. Um, because we want to do this in every single area of life, of society, for every single person, regardless of background, regardless of where they're from, because that's what life is all about. It's not about the one thing. It's not about just sports. It's about loving one another. It's about understanding one another. It's about shedding light in the dark corners of society. And we're missing out on these opportunities. And I said it to you before, one of our conversations, I laugh when people say things can't be done or we have to wait and we have to go through all these hoops and stuff to get stuff done. And I said, wait a minute, you act as if we have time to waste. <laughs> if, something, if something needs to get done, it needs to get done yesterday. So don't tell me all the reasons why this can't be done or that we have to wait another six to 12 months because that little boy and that little girl that has a disability, that little black boy that's in the ghetto, they need to be saved today. Yeah. They need this stuff right now. So the luxury that you're sitting on telling me that we have to wait, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to accept that anymore. I'm just not, you know, you need to go be more right now. Yeah. Right now. And so if we're not awake by now with all this stuff happening in society, if we're not fighting for each other right now, regardless of our situations, I'm not a person with a disability, but I'm going to tell you right now, if somebody has a problem, I have a problem, mm. you know, and we all need to start acting like that, you know? And so God bless you, man, for what you're doing, because, you know, obviously you have an intimate relationship with this, but you've taken it way beyond that. You've taken it upon yourself. And so has your family. You know, your wife and your kids as a family, as a group, as a unit, you guys have taken it upon yourselves to do something about it for other families. Yeah. And that's amazing. And we all need to follow that example. No, I, I, say that, I say this a lot just to help people understand it, which is Angel City's not for Ezra. He yeah. was going to be fine. Mm -hmm. I'll take him to Oklahoma. <laughs> I'll, get, yeah. I'll give him access. Yeah. It's not for Ezra. It's for people that don't have the resources and the time and the family support and all the blessings that, that he has is for people that have a fraction of what he has that could never figure this out on their own. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a, it's the lion's share of our community. You know, uh, <laughs> disability is not a good thing for wealth creation. Yeah. You know, it is not a good thing. Uh, if you thought you were middle-class and you, you know, a disability hits your family, you knock down a rung. So, um, you know, you tend to see wealthier families in the adaptive sports community and that sort of kills me, you know, like that, mm -hmm. like that's not how it can't be. It's already hard enough journey. And now you're, you're, you're saying basically the wealthy get to participate in sport. Come on. Yeah. You know, so this is, this was, this was me sitting on that track in Oklahoma going, okay, where are the kids from East LA? Where are the kids from South LA? Where, where are, where's the diversity, you know, yeah. uh, to some extent, cause it's not that diverse right now. And, and, Angel City is very diverse, you know, being in LA and we do, we do whatever we can to kind of find, you know, find outreach into these different pockets, but we could do more, way more. I mean, I'd love to like get connected to churches and like legit community groups that, that is, man, the, the violence in these inner cities, there's a lot of people living with disability in the cities. Um, so, um, so no, that you're, you know, you're, uh, you're right on. I mean, it's not for the Ezra's, it's, it's for, for everybody else. Um, Clayton, we always end our podcast with the same question and I'm, I'm, I'm curious if you could tell us what, what does the phrase go be more mean to you? 
So it's, you know, it's a new phrase for me. I've just, just been hearing about it recently. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I think for me, it's about, I think you have to sort of identify what you think your limits are and then punch through that and, and envision something that's higher. So if your sort of goal or your, your you thought your limits were here, you know, that, you know, it, it's like, no, that's not really it. It should be up here. It doesn't mean you always get there. You might get somewhere in the middle or you might just get what you, you were originally set out for. Um, but, uh, but sort of always thinking what, whatever that was, right? Whatever that, that goal was, that it's not enough, that you need to go higher and aspire and dream bigger than, than you were dreaming already. So, uh, so yeah, so I, I, that's kind of what, what it is for me. Love it. Uh, Clayton, thank you so much for joining us, for sharing the story for taking the extra time. I know we went longer than we told you we were going to go, but um, I'm so just glad we did. Just by a smidget, just by a little bit. <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad we did because um, really, you know, I, I feel like we got to tell maybe a pretty complete story where it wasn't just about Angel City or just about you and and, and, um, and those things are, are tied together. And and I hope that all of our listeners have a better appreciation now for the for adaptive athletics, for the opportunities and the challenges that those athletes are facing. and and hopefully, whether you know, if we have any who are potential participants, they'll join one of your clinics. But if nothing else, maybe uh, when when you're able to hold the next Angel City Games, we'll we'll have some more people out there, and, and we can bring a little Go Be More community out to uh, to to meet and be a part of it. That would be amazing. Yeah, volunteer, man. We we were absolutely we were gonna, this year. We were going to need like six or seven hundred volunteers over five days. Like it's it's a big wow. Effort. Yeah, it's fantastic. So yeah, let's uh, let's. Let's figure out how we can and can help and be in touch. And, and again, for me, thank you very much for joining us on the show and, and sharing your story. Of course. My honor. Thank you. Thank, thank you again, Clayton, man. Wonderful stuff. Uh, excited to participate as much as we can to support your vision. Glad I found you, man. <laughs> I'm excited. All right. All right. Talk to you soon. All right. Cheers. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that episode. A couple more things before we go. First, a big thank you to Michelle at Creatives Collective Marketing for her assistance with the editing and show notes. Our next episode will feature runner, author, and Shoe for Africa founder, Toby Tanser. He talks about going from a chain-smoking biker to a sponsored runner, and how his experiences have led into his latest project, building the first children's cancer hospital in Kenya. Lastly, if you enjoy the pod, please help us out by giving us a review on iTunes. It makes a big difference, and to make it extra easy for you, I put a link in the reviews at the top of the show notes. For all of us at Go Be More, we are what the world is chasing, and we hope this podcast helps you become what the world is chasing too.